Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, the two Michaels come home. How are you feeling, Michael? Fantastic. Thank you very much. After being imprisoned in China for nearly three years, Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor suddenly return home. For the past thousand days, uh, they have shown strength, perseverance, resilience, and grace. Their release came hours after the criminal charges against Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou resolved in the U.S. But how did the deal finally come together? How did Canada work with the U.S. to free the hostages? And what does it mean for Canada-China relations? The Canadian ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman, joins us. And so does the former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques. Plus, deja vu. You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic. He failed to win a majority, so what will Justin Trudeau's minority government make their first priority? How can NDP leader Jagmeet Singh hold the balance of power? And what will the future of Green Party leader Annamie Paul be? And what does the rise of populism and the People's Party of Canada say about the country? Tom Mulcair, Zane Velgian, Adrian Batra break it all down. And then O'Toole's future? I've already initiated a post-election review to examine what went right, what went wrong. Aaron has broken the trust of uh, the members by changing his position so drastically. As some party members move to oust him after the election laws, can Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole save his job? Should the party keep moving to the centre or tack back to the right? Conservative MP Michelle Rumpel-Garner joins us on what needs to happen now. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. 1,019 days. That's how long Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor spent behind bars in China. They were detained on what the Canadian government regarded as bogus charges of espionage, and it became the most famous international case of hostage diplomacy. But today, they are finally free and back home on Canadian soil. Both men landed in Calgary early Saturday morning, greeted by Prime Minister Trudeau. Their long-awaited journey home came just hours after Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou left Vancouver from her house arrest with U.S. fraud charges against her resolve. Meng was arrested in Canada at the request of the U.S. nearly three years ago. The detainment of the Michaels was viewed as retaliation. It just started just 10 days later, despite denials from Beijing. But the timing of their release now leaves no doubt. The two Michaels were clearly and brutally used as human bargaining chips in a geopolitical game between the U.S. and China. And that means a lot of back-channel work with allies to get them home. But what exactly was involved in the negotiation to bring the two Michaels home? How did the U.S. link the resolution of the charges against Meng to the release of the two Michaels? And where does this leave the relationship between Canada China and the U.S. Let's find out. Joining me now, someone who was very instrumental in these negotiations, Canadian Ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman. First of all, Ambassador, uh, I know you've worked very tirelessly on this. You must be incredibly relieved and delighted, as are all Canadians, to see the two Michaels home. Uh, give us a sense of how they are doing and their reaction to the news. Oh, th thank you, Evan, and I'm absolutely delighted to see them home. It has been a long journey to get here, and I couldn't be happier. Look, they're very relieved 
Uh, they were delighted to, to be reunited with their families. They're very eager to catch up on all sorts of things. I mean, if you think about it, they, they missed COVID in Canada, right? There's so much that has happened in our society that they have, have not been privy to, and let alone in their personal and family lives. So it's, uh, it's great to have them back. Tell us exactly the moment when they found out that they were coming home. When did they know it's over, you are about to come home? When did that happen? Uh, they they knew that something was happening um, a, a few hours before, but they only knew that they were going home really moments before they boarded the plane. But there was a lot of logistics. Yeah, they, they were in two different locations. Right. So, so it seems like this, how long have these negotiations between the U.S., obviously Canada, and we can get to that in a minute, and China been going on for? So... I think that, the, that just to say that there's sort of two things that happened simultaneously or, or two things that came together in time. The first, of course, is the um, judicial negotiation of Madame Meng with the U.S. Department of Justice in relation to the charges that were against her in the United States court. And those were ongoing. Um, and as those got closer to uh, a resolution... What happened was that the, the Chinese government, I think, in having felt for over a thousand days, as you said, incredible pressure, right, incredible pressure from Canada, uh, from our allies around the world that we had mobilized in regards to the situation of the Michaels and the call for their immediate uh, release, including the United States. So all of our allies had, had been raising this publicly and privately over and over and over again for, for over two years. In the light of the progress that was being made with uh, the hearing for or the, the case for Ms. Meng in the United States, I think the Chinese government decided that, you know, it was time to put this behind them and but, move on. Okay, but, but let, let's be clear. When the U.S. is about to resolve the charges against Meng, they're clearly talking to the Chinese about this. This is at the very highest levels. Um, did the United States make it a condition of the resolution of the charges of Meng Wanzhou that China, in return, must release the two Michaels on the same immediately? Absolutely not. The, the DPA and the resolution of the charges against Mez Meng was a completely independent process, and it was proceeding as it did. Um, but so it, how were they linked? I'm just trying to figure this out. I know if the deferred prosecution agreement was independent, you get the deferred prosecution agreement happening in a court, you right. get the BC court, and literally Mung's released, and then hours later, they don't just appear. You've got to get the planes, you've got to get the, the logistics to get the two Michaels on a plane are enormously complex. They must have been linked in the negotiation. They were, as I say, as the, as the resolution for Ms. Mung was heading towards success, and the parties to that discussion felt that they were heading towards success, the Chinese government made its decision. And its decision was that it was no longer, you know, in its interest to continue holding the Michaels. And so they started the process uh, in talking to our officials in, in Beijing about making arrangements to have the Michaels leave. Did, did China say the moment amongst the charges, whatever happens, if the the charges against Meng Wanzhou are resolved, we will release them that day. When did China convey that message to Canada? Yeah, I mean, there were the, the, the discussions happened over the course of a fairly, you know, a lengthy period of time, so I can't pinpoint the exact time, and I think sort of the logistics of it all are, are I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not really able to say, but we knew, obviously... Right. If
far enough in advance to have the planes in place. And I, can I just say, I really would like to say this for Canadians, there are some incredibly talented consular officers in Beijing and here in Ottawa that were responsible for that very, right. you know, incredible bringing together of these two processes. And they do a lot of work that's behind the scenes, and I'd just like to really give a shout-out to them. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right. Huge amounts of work going, going on behind the scenes there. But is it now clear that because of that that China explicitly uh, imprisoned the two Michaels as retaliation for Meng Wanzhou, that this was the most naked example of hostage diplomacy that the world is seeing right now. Is that now fair to say? Because it seems that China's implicitly, they're not even embarrassed by it. Well, I mean, I think everyone is drawing the conclusions that the facts seem to demonstrate. I what does that mean for the future, then, in dealing with China? Is it, who's the next two Michaels? Well, you know, I, I, what I would say about, about this situation, and I think it's really important to, to underline, is that Canada didn't ever back down from our commitment to international law. We never succumbed to the pressure that, unfortunately, the two Michaels were the victims of. We continued to proceed in court in Vancouver to resolve these uh, matters according to international law and according to the commitments that we had made under our treaty, as did the United States in, right. in their case. And I think that that's the lesson to draw from this, is that it was, the hardship was incredible for those two men. But we, we stood by our commitments, and we didn't succumb to the right. pressure that that was intended yeah. to put on us. Uh, just last question, Ambassador. Um, will Canada and the U.S. now work together to try to make more robust treaties, like the Treaty Against Arbitrary Detention that both are signatories to, uh, to stop China from using hostage diplomacy? What new measures against China will the U.S. and Canada work together on? Well, I think it's it's important for us to reflect on this exactly and to see what, as an international community, we, we got allies from around the world to stand up and call this out in our declaration against arbitrary detention. And I think thinking about what that means, and it's it's not specifically China-focused. You know, there are other countries that engage in, in tactics like this, and I think we have to think about what we can do from here to make sure it never happens again. Other countries, but not other superpowers like that. Uh, Ambassador Hillman, I know you and your teams must be incredibly relieved. The country is relieved. Thanks for your work, and thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. And we will pick this topic up later in the program. We'll be joined by the former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques. But when we come back, election fallout. Why did no leader manage to build any substantial support in the last federal election? And is the People's Party and the rise of populism here to stay? Tom Mulcair, Adrian Batra, Zane Velji join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. If the gains for all the parties in this last election were minuscule, and they were, the consequences were not. By now, parties are combing through the data, trying to surmise where they lost and where they gained, and if their leaders are now an asset or a liability. After a faltering campaign start in August, the Liberals finally used issues like gun control and vaccine passports to maintain their minority government, but Justin Trudeau did not get a sniff of the majority he wanted. And after suddenly tacking his party to the political center, close to the Liberals on many issues, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole tried to make the campaign about Mr. Trudeau's character, didn't work. He didn't manage to win one extra seat. As for NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, his expensive $24 million campaign, which leaned heavily on social media, managed only to win him one more seat, meaning in two elections he's minus 19 seats, didn't grow in Ontario or Quebec. Meanwhile, Green Party leader Annemi Paul came in a stunning fourth place in her race, and while the Greens snagged a seat in Ontario, her leadership is almost certainly in deep trouble. And as for the People's Party, no seats. 
but they did have an impact splitting the conservative vote in key ridings. So what does each party need to do now? Status quo or the big shift? Let's find out. Joining me now, Tom Mulcair, CTV's political commentator and uh, former NDP leader. Zane Velge, former federal liberal campaign strategist, and Adrian Patrick, she's the uh, editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun and served as a press secretary for Mayor Rob Ford. Uh, wow, good morning to everybody. Uh, the morning, morning the morning after, good as morning. we used to say. Zane, uh, let's start on the liberal side. Uh, Justin Trudeau grabbed a few more seats, failed to win the majority. Uh, how much damage has he sustained, or what's the consequence of this minority third mandate? Well, I think for Justin Trudeau, he wants to move on from this election as soon as possible. Because to your point, you know, while he has maybe ended up with the exact same scenario, which, by the way, is a huge win for them, considering the context of the first couple of weeks of this campaign, they now end up with having to restart the entire governance machine, having a mandate that says just get back to work, while losing four female cabinet ministers. So the act of governance for Trudeau is going to be a real challenge coming up. And he's probably hobbled a bit and maybe humbled a bit from the perspective of his own leadership and legacy, because this did not end, if you do believe this is the end for Trudeau, with a four-year majority government, rather with a minority where he may have to have at least one eye on succession planning and taking that long walk in the snow at some point to figure out who replaces him on his terms. Yeah, I don't know if there's snow in his sunny ways or if he's more Sean Connery. <laughs> never say never again on that one. Tom, uh, uh, Adrian, let me go to you, though. Mr. O'Toole's facing a lot of pressure right now, as you know. Uh, his gamble, I'll drag the party to the center and I'll win votes in Ontario and Quebec. That was a loser. Uh, what does he do now? Like, where does that party go? Do they tack right? Do they, they stick with them and, and stay in the center? Well, I think there would be many within the party that would argue that uh, Mr. O'Toole's sort of moving to the center right was it was the appropriate thing to do and finally bringing the Conservative Party in that direction, not only to make it more palatable, but that's just, you know, where, where so many Canadians are. The challenge the Conservatives had, Aaron O'Toole in particular, was, you know, there there wasn't a lot of clear messaging. There's only so much you can say, you know, Trudeau bad. Um, I, and I think that Canadians have sort of lost their love affair with Justin Trudeau. So that was obvious. But it wasn't a clear message as to uh, answering on the, on, with respect to the guns, answering with respect to the, the vaccinated or non-vaccinated candidates. And, and so, you know, when, when people went to the ballot box, they weren't prepared to, to sort of look at Aaron O'Toole's version of conservatives and say, OK, I, I'm comfortable with this. So as, as the party usually does, you know, they circle the wagons, they point the guns inward, which we see them doing yet again. It's really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Where they go, Evan, that's going to be up to the party, um, you know, faithful. But uh, I think if I were to make some sort of prediction, I think they're going to hang on to Aaron O'Toole as leader, especially if we do have a potential election. Tom, uh, the NDP, I mean, Jagmeet Singh spent, he spent two elections. He's got, what, minus 19 seats over two elections. Look, he scores high on likability. He's probably saved by the fact that he's the balance of power, but he hasn't translated all that into real votes. Is he weakened right now? What does the NDP now need to do? I think Singh's going to remain leader as long as he wants to, but it's, it is worth pointing out with a smile that the NDP he got more seats in Montreal than in Toronto for the fourth election in a row, but they only got one in Montreal because they got none in Toronto. It's more. Uh, that's the biggest problem that they've got right now. Throughout the campaign and prior, the NDP was riding high in the polls in the greater Toronto area, 24, 26%. They made a bizarre decision in terms of organization. They were going to keep all of their troops in as many ridings as possible and hope to pick up a whole bunch instead of doing mm. the obvious, which is concentrating as many people 
people as they could on a place like Danforth. And they wound up dividing and diluting, and they wind up with nothing. So it's a shame because there are a lot of issues that are dear to people on the progressive side in Toronto that would have loved to have seen the NDP get through. If I would just add, I think the Conservatives and the NDP are probably going to be asking themselves a version of the same question in this mushy middle right after the election before you know we, we sit for, for Parliament, which is, who do we want to be? If you're the NDP, do we want to actually chart a pathway to government? Or do we want this popular, likable leader to get us into third or fourth place in this country and then just wish on election night that we hold the balance of power in minority governments based on how things have been going in this country? And then if you're the Conservatives, you know, Conservative Party founded sometime in 2003, so approaching its 18th birthday, the question for them is, what do you want to be when you grow up, son? What do you want to be as a party? Right. And Adrian, just pick up on that yeah. because, uh, you know, of course the NDP got swiped again by the Liberals, but the Liberals have moved as they have always done, as Craig Oliver calls them, as polit political kleptomaniacs, and they steal left-wing <laughs> ideas. On the right, though, you got the rise of populism and the People's Party. How does Aaron O'Toole, what does he do? Does he seed ground to that and, and tack to the center? Or does he listen to some voices like the former finance minister, Joe Oliver, and go back to the right and try to retrieve those votes? Mm -hmm. With respect to the, the People's Party, I mean, 5% national support. Uh, it could be argued that maybe in a, one or two ridings here or, or there, maybe in, in BC, that it did potentially cost a seat for the Conservatives, but it wouldn't have been enough for them to to either win a, major, uh, win a minority government even. So I, I think that the PPC uh, effect um, was far more amplified. And, and yeah, they're probably majority, uh, you know, a good portion of them are disgruntled Conservatives, but they but the PPC is just, mm. you know, they are anti-establishment ties. I think they're coming from all parties. And so I, I think even, even for the bloc leader, Evan, he's going to have uh, some questions uh, from his own caucus. So it's really interesting sort of watching the dynamic of the results of this election. Canadians saying, go back to work. We didn't need this election in the first place. But um, for Mr. O'Toole specifically, just on that notion, um, it has to be more than just waiting for the NDP to do better for the Conservatives to do better. Yeah. And so I think that that is a serious rethink um, within this party strategy and, and they have to revisit. A last word to you, Tom Mulcair. Annamie Paul, she had an historic election uh, as the leader of the Green Party, the first black Canadian to lead a federal party, the first Jewish Canadian. Uh, she loses, she comes in fourth place in the Toronto Centre riding. A devastating loss. I don't know what her political career is. Just real quick, does the Green Party have a political viability problem? Second Jewish leader after David Lewis of the NDP, but right. I think she, the, the Greens do have a serious problem, and it's that they decided that in a summer of heat domes, and uncontrolled forest fires, when environment, sustainable development, and fighting climate change should have been top of mind, they decided to have a fight about that defining environmental question, Israel-Palestine. It was bonkers. They self-immolated. She has unfortunately been damaged beyond repair. I mean, Annamie Paul, who was such a fresh voice, so articulate in the French and in the English debates, brought so much to the game. I don't know what's going to be left of that party. We already heard Elizabeth May musing about coming back. Good luck with renewal there. It's mm -hmm. a real shame because it's a time mm -hmm. when Canadians put environment right at the top of their priority list. Unfortunately, the Green Party just wasn't there for them.
uh, deep yeah, things well that everybody's trying to figure it out. Uh, listen, great to have uh, all of you, uh, Zane, Adrian, and Tom. Uh, busy, busy last couple months. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, when we come back, Aaron O'Toole in the hot seat. Can he survive as conservative leader after the election loss? Do conservatives continue to veer to the center or tack back to the right? Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. He's already facing a challenge to his leadership. After failing to win any more seats in the federal election, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole must now shift from fighting for Justin Trudeau's job to fighting for his own. A member of the Conservative National Council, Bert Chen, has already launched an online petition calling for Mr. O'Toole to be replaced. Chen argues O'Toole has betrayed conservative values and broken trust. Part of integrity is keeping the promises that you make. And uh, during the leadership campaign, uh, more than a year ago, Mr. O'Toole ran as a true blue conservative that the members elected him for. When the campaign started, uh, we saw that that was clearly uh, being reversed. Chen wants a referendum called on Mr. O'Toole's leadership, but there's no party mechanism to do that. The next required leadership review comes in 2023, but the debate is clearly wide open. I think that Aaron O'Toole took a, a gamble in terms of how he's running this campaign as opposed to uh, what he ran on his leadership uh, campaign. And so I think, that, uh, I think that if he is not declared the winner of the 44th uh, general uh, election of the 44th parliament, I think that uh, he will have a hard time staying on as leader. And the former conservative finance minister under Stephen Harper, Joe Oliver, wrote a column saying that Mr. O'Toole's move to the political center was a mistake. He wrote the party should not, quote, mimic the left wing's latest faddish ideas and retreaded socialist truths. Mr. O'Toole knows he's in trouble and has already triggered a campaign review. Check this out. We had losses or we fell slightly short from where we needed to be. That is exactly why I've already started the process of having a review. So can he survive the internal debate? And which direction will the Conservative Party go now? Let's find out. Joining me now is Conservative MP Michelle Rumpel-Garner, who has just won another election, and congratulations to Thanks. you. Um, look, Mr. O'Toole campaigned uh, on a renewed, moderate Conservative Party, said we're not your dad's party. It was less Stephen Harper and more Brian Mulroney. Uh, but he had promised in exchange for doing that there'd be a breakthrough in Quebec and a breakthrough in Ontario. He failed to do that. Uh, he didn't actually do even as well as Andrew Scheer. What went wrong? Well, I would say what went right. Um, I, I knocked thousands of doors. I, nobody wanted to be in this election. And, I mean, you've had a lot of people on your show, Evan, uh, six weeks ago who, you know, it was a walk-away majority, you know, foregone conclusion for the Liberals. And... The fact is, is that we have uh, held Justin Trudeau to a minority. We have that ability to uh, be a strong opposition in Parliament. And we've, you know, elected more women. I, I am encouraged that uh, Mr. O'Toole has announced, as he said, that campaign review is something I certainly will be uh, taking part in. Um, but, you know, what I heard from my community, now, now that I'm re-elected, I have to put the needs of my constituents first. I think everybody wants stability. Nobody wanted an election. And I want my focus to be on getting Parliament back to work to deal with important issues like right. Afghanistan, vaccine hesitancy, and that's but, but where I understand that. our priorities have to be. I, and I guess that's the message of Canadians. But let me just drill back down on, on the message. I mean, 
I understand if you want to measure it, well, we held them to a minority. You know, Mr. O'Toole did not win a single seat. He lost seats in Alberta, as you know. Um, a lot of people, Harper conservatives, and I know you were elected under the Harper government, but they said to us, like you just saw Jenny Byrne, they were betrayed on the, uh, he ran as a true blue conservative. He was, during the leadership race, he said no to a carbon tax, then he introduced a carbon tax, he flip-flopped on guns. All that was in order to break through in Ontario and Quebec. It didn't happen. So like, introspectively, and you've said they need a deep rethink, what needs to be rethought about the strategy? Does he keep tacking to the centre or do they go back to the right? Yeah, well, you just closed your last question with the words, I guess that's the message to Canadians. And, and that's who I'm talking about. We're not talking, I'm not talking to pundits. I need to ensure that for my constituents, we have a clear path forward out of the pandemic and also out of the economic crisis that our country is in right now, we need to get back to work. Yes, we're going to have a parliamentary or a campaign review. I am looking forward to that. I'm not a shrinking violet. I will put my two cents on the table to make sure that our half, our, our party well, what is, is that? So viable. what is it? Like center, well, st yeah, stay yeah, the course or, or go back? Like that's what I'm asking you. That's the purpose of a review is to have that conversation. I mean, you know, Justin Trudeau has not been trotted out to ask why he didn't get his majority that was promised. Maybe you're going to do that. You certainly don't see his caucus having, you know, these types of conversations in the news. You, you do have someone like Mr. Chen who's got a petition with over 2,000 signatures saying Mr. O'Toole betrayed the party. And, and he did take, look, he rebranded re the party. Joe Oliver. I mean, these are people that are not you know, small figures in the Conservative Party. They don't like the direction it's going. So what's your answer to Mr. Chen and others? They are entitled to their opinion. They are, you know, their contributions to the party are valued and they have a review process to be part of, as I will. They have their opinions and I have mine. I have a responsibility to about 120,000 Canadians to come up with significant policy solutions for a major crisis. That's where my focus has to be, regardless of, of all of this stuff, right? It would be so easy to get sucked into this sort of a conversation with you and others nationally, but the message has to be we are fighting for Canadians and we are going to make sure that there is stability and unity, even across party lines. Okay, uh, let's talk about some, some of the issues then. Based on the election results, it's clear about 65% of Canadians voted for parties who supported vaccine passports, mandatory vaccine for candidates. Even Ontario Premier Doug Ford came around to the passport. All his candidates will be vaccinated in next year's provincial election. Was Mr. Tool wrong on that issue? And will, there, will he change his position now after the election? He's listened to it, didn't work. Does he change his view on that? Well, I think that if we hadn't had an election this summer, this is, you know, addressing the concern of vaccine hesitancy and how to address, you know, what I think is a very, that there's so many different reasons people would give as to why they are not getting vaccinated. That's work we should have been doing. And I'm looking forward to getting back to that soon. I think that it's very important for people to get vaccinated. Our party has been at the front of pushing for the government to procure vaccines and, and encouraging right. people to do that. And we're not going to deviate from that message. What we are going to ensure is that the divisive, unnecessary rhetoric that was coming out of the Trudeau Liberals during the campaign does not continue to hamper but, vaccination but, but, efforts. But, but just, to, just to be fair, but, but most Canadians say that the division was on in your party that you didn't support mandatory vaccinations for all your candidates or for planes, buses. And now, now, you know, the NDP supported that, the Liberals supported that. They're, they have enough votes to, to get a majority uh, government I, I, there. I, I, so so I did, I'm just trying to ask because... 
Does Mr. O'Toole change his view on that in the midst of this fourth wave? I, 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 this is the one time where we'll speak on behalf of our party leader. Our party leader strongly believes everyone should be vaccinated. Where we differ from the Liberals is, you know, Justin Trudeau called unvaccinated Canadians names for six weeks. Um, should everybody be vaccinated? Yes, people should be getting vaccinated. But we also have a public policy like, role to play to look at reasons why people aren't doing that and then providing support to the provinces. And you support Aaron O'Toole staying on board I as do. leader? I do. Okay. I'll leave it there. Uh, Michelle Rumpel-Garner, congrats on your, on your win and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up, the Michaels are home. Now what? Could the return of the two hostages mean a change in the relationship between Canada and China? How did it all happen? Former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques, breaks that down with us on the Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. With the two Michaels making their dramatic and emotional return home early Saturday morning, it's now starkly clear to the whole world. Hostage diplomacy is a key part of China's foreign policy. The independent judicial process, irrelevant to them. The international extradition treaty that Canada followed to China, something to be trampled on. The two Michaels were used, brutally treated and abused simply because China wanted billionaire Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou freed. Although China continues to deny it, this is the most raw and stark example of that superpower's use of hostage diplomacy and an unashamed flouting of the rule of international law, and one that will resonate for years to come. So the questions, who will the next two Michaels be? How does Canada or the world do business with China now? And where does the Canada-China relationship go from here? Let's talk about that right now with the Scrum CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier joins us. So does Marika Walsh, political reporter with the Globe and Mail. And our special guest for this round, former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques. First of all, good morning to all of you. And I'm sure like everybody, you share the joy in seeing the, the two Michaels come home. Uh, Guy Saint-Jacques, um, what do you think was the key to the release? What is the message you are taking away when you saw them and the prime minister announce they're coming home? Well, I was uh, elated. I didn't expect that, frankly. I thought that uh, Ottawa would have to engage in further negotiations, that the Chinese would want to save face by pretending that uh, the rule of law had been followed and they would have to sentence Michael Kovrig. I think uh, we, we have to be very grateful to President Biden because I'm sure that he has impressed on Xi Jinping that he, he needed to let the two Canadians go at the same time as Mrs. Meng. Uh, would be leaving uh, uh, Vancouver. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, in a way, China must feel that uh, it's a, a tactic of using uh, hostages as work. But at the same time, they know they have paid uh, a heavy price in terms of their reputation, especially with this declaration that was adopted last February. Now it's uh, time for Canada to work with allies to instrumentalize this uh, declaration so that if China dares to use this tactic again, they would subject to sanctions that would be applied by signatories to the declaration all at the same time. Yeah, the declaration, of course, is what the, the China instrument, Joyce, which was uh, the declaration against arbitrary detention. Joyce, um, obviously, China maintained there was no link between those two cases. The timing of that makes that impossible to believe. What's your takeaway here? Well, obviously, but didn't we know from the way beginning uh, that the arrest and imprisonment of these two Michaels was for, uh, retaliatory? Uh, look, I don't think that anybody should mistake this 
for goodwill on the part of China. Um, you know, it, it, having a relationship with China is like having a relationship with an abusive husband. Um, uh, you know, you have kids in common, so you have to deal with the abusive husband. In this case, it's China. It's the inevitable relationship that the world will have to have with China. The only, the only question now is, how do you deal with this relationship? How do you make this relationship acceptable uh, to uh, the world democracies, to the United States as well? Listen, the American ambassador is, uh, the new ambassador is coming to Canada, and his questions are to Canada, what will your relationship with China be? Uh, we've got to unite. These countries have to be united against China, unfortunately, because it's the big bully uh, in the schoolyard. Marika, uh, Justin Trudeau was, had been criticized for years. Why aren't you doing anything to get the two Michaels out? It was an election issue. Clearly behind the scenes, quietly, these negotiations were going on all the time, and they were waiting for this. Uh, what do you make of how this worked? And, and, and pick it up on what Joy said, where Canada goes from here. <clears throat> Evan, that's the big question. We see this resolution, thankfully, for these Canadians and their families after uh, a very long time of, of really their lives being robbed. And the question is, what does Canada do now? That's something that Justin Trudeau did not want to engage with when he had his brief press conference with reporters on Friday. But look to decisions like what Canada does on Huawei. How quickly does Canada move on those kinds of decisions, whether to allow Huawei to be part of Canada's 5G network as maybe a sign of how they will now respond. There's a massive irritant that's removed, but there's still a ton of work for this government on that file. As Joyce mentioned, the incoming or, or the nominated U.S. ambassador to Canada last week told, um, told Congress and, and told the Senate committee that, that he wants to see, or the U.S. is still waiting to see Canada's new framework on China. So the work is still there for the government. Yeah, uh, Guy Saint-Jacques, uh, as, as Marika said, that finally the decision on whether Huawei should be part of the 5G, the, our allies have said no, you, maybe this accelerates Canada's decision-making on that. What, how do you reposition Canada's relationship with China now? Well, I would say that first we have to remember that uh, uh, the U.S. is our closest ally. Of course, the, the U.S. feels that uh, its closest ally now is Australia, but uh, I think that just shows that you know, uh, Canada's lack uh, relevance in Washington. We, we have to do work. And in the case of China, our, our approach should be based on the protection of our values and our interests. And, and from there, that means that we need to have a, a much more strategic approach with China. Of course, we have to engage with them. They are a superpower. But uh, we have to be selective in what we will want to do with them. Uh, in my view, we need to work with them on pandemics and climate change. But for the rest, we should work in concert with uh, allies to try to develop uh, as many alliances as possible because, and to be firm because that's the only way to force uh, China to change. Uh, for instance, they like to use uh, trade as a weapon. You know, the, Canada has been at the receiving end. Now it's the turn of Australia. Yeah. I think there's a way to uh, prevent uh, them from doing this by making alliances. So, uh, for instance, to... If one of the, the uh, if we were to have an alliance with uh, Australia and the mm. U.S., if one of the three is victim of sanctions on its barley or on, on its pork, the two others would promise not to increase their exports uh, beyond their historical share of the uh, U.S. Right. market. But there are many things that we can do that, and China will quickly uh, get the message that 
they can no longer divide to uh, conquer. Corey, okay, George, pick up on that. I should just say there are some Canadians are wondering, what about Robert Schellenberg? He's facing a death sentence, another Canadian there for drug smuggling. This is a very different case, of course, than the two Michaels, but there's still ongoing issues there, uh, consular issues there. But Joyce, uh, how does Justin Trudeau now reposition the relationship with China? Well, just listen, China is uh, one of our biggest trading partner, the biggest trading partner with the U.S. So it is a necessary relationship. How Justin Trudeau does it, uh, you know, he's talked tough. He's rallied, rallied allies against China. He's managed to do that. Uh, I think what's important is to have a policy on China, which he doesn't seem to have right now. And okay, his hands were tied because of the two Michaels. Are, are we going to hear more tough talk uh, from Justin Trudeau? And how much tough talk can a soft power uh, have against China without allies? So, you know, Canada acting alone is like Australia acting alone or Japan. Uh, they too have prisoners in, uh, in China. Yeah, that is the question, the international uh treaties and, and what comes next. All right, I got to leave it there today, but, a, but an extraordinary series of rapid developments. Uh, Joyce Napier, Guy Saint-Jacques, thanks so much for joining us. I know, Marika, you're going to stay with us when we come back. Pandemic priorities and pitfalls. What will the big issues be facing the government when Parliament resumes outside of the relationship with China? Will it be vaccine mandates, economic recovery, childcare? The Scrum returns and our special guest will be Calgary Mayor Nad Nenshi dealing with the pandemic situation in Alberta. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, the pandemic doesn't work on election cycles, so while politicians are now regrouping after the 36-day federal campaign that was essentially a long march around a short political mulberry bush, the fourth wave is busy cresting, especially in provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, all of which makes getting MPs back to work in the buildings behind me a lot more urgent. How fast does the federal government need to get on with things like a vaccine passport for planes, trains and buses? When should vaccines be mandated for federal workers? And what else do they need to move on? $10 a day daycare. How will the prime minister respond to a new push from the premiers for unconditional health care funding? For too long, the federal government has been diminishing their contribution to public health care. And we believe that diminishment has to stop and we need to get back to a better relationship where at least 35 percent of public health funding comes from Ottawa. All right, let's find out. The Scrum is back with Stephanie Levitz, Parliament Hill reporter with The Star, Marika Walsh, political reporter with The Globe and Mail, and our special guest this round is the Calgary Mayor, Nad Nenshi. Um, great to have you all back. And, of course, Mayor, uh, welcome to you. Your province obviously being hit tragically hard by this pandemic, the fourth wave, so I want to start there. Um, has your province's leadership failed to protect its own citizens? And, and then what role, then, would the federal government have right now? Well, yes, they clearly have. Uh, we are in a position right now where we have never had as many people in the intensive care unit in Alberta's history as we do today. And this was avoidable. Uh, this was uh, a real abdication of leadership by the provincial government. And ultimately, we just have to get to work. So the city of Calgary this week went ahead and passed a vaccine passport bylaw because the premier was too busy tying himself in knots trying to avoid saying the words vaccine passport mm. and businesses were confused people were confused so we just went ahead and did it and ultimately uh, the day after the election they waited until after the election the province finally asked the federal government for help this is a province that has left 
unbelievable amounts of money on the table because they didn't want the federal government to have a win. They refused to adopt the federal COVID tracing app and created their own that I think got 300 downloads. So it's been a pattern uh, for a while, and I'm hopeful that the federal government will be able to help us quickly alleviate some of the stress on our healthcare system as we try and power our way through these next three or four weeks that are going to be bad. I've got to tell you, I, I hear anger in your voice, and I'll come back to it. But, Steph, uh, the pandemic is clearly still the priority here, uh, and, and voters clearly want, as Nancy just said, MPs to get to work. What are the first priority? What do you expect the first priorities to be? I guess they got to get a cabinet going, but once Parliament resumes. Well, one is to get Parliament resuming. And, you know, if we look back to the 2019 election, they took quite a long time to come back after that vote. They only sat for two weeks and broke for Christmas. And, you know, then you could argue maybe there were no as massive issues gripping the nation, but there certainly are now. And so Justin Trudeau has to move, I think, as fast as possible, because he made the case to Canadians that job number one for him was going to be finishing the fight against the pandemic. We are still very much in the pandemic, and there's a lot of big questions that have to be asked. I mean, you, you know, you alluded, Evan, to the vaccine passport and national system for that, mandatory vaccines for the federal public service. But let's also talk about the benefits and all the economic benefits that have been promised to people. The idea was those were going to start being able to be phased out as early as later this fall. Is that still feasible? What does what, what the landscape look like economically, nationally? And how is the federal government, if at all, going to keep moving forward to fill some of the gaps that the pandemic is still creating? Mariko, those are great questions because some of those will be uh, critical questions as Parliament resumes. What do you think the priorities will be right now? I think there's going to be a push-pull between the Liberals wanting to deal with the pandemic, needing to make good on their, on their promise to end it, but also looking forward when they're looking at the Prime Minister's legacy, and that's where it comes down to climate change and childcare. I think Stephanie is absolutely right. They need to be seen to be coming down to work very quickly after this election, especially because people do not believe the election was needed. Whether that means, though, that they bring the House of Commons back, I'm not sure that they necessarily believe they need to do that right away. I think they can show in other ways that they are getting down to work. So it will depend on what they prioritize. Does that need to be a bill attached to that, and therefore they need the House right away? Or is it going to be more about what Cabinet is doing and what the Prime Minister is doing in the weeks ahead? Well, let me go back to you, Mayor, because cities are feeling this. Your city, one, one example, uh, and I think Steph raised this question. I mean, I know there's big picture items like childcare. That's a, that's a long time down the road, even that they've got to negotiate. But whether these COVID support programs wind up now or later, some have argued they got to wind up now because there's a labor shortage. Others say, are you crazy? We're in the fourth wave. From a, a, a municipal point of view, where are you on those questions? Well, we have to look after people. And, you know, that's one of the things that federal and provincial governments, even my provincial government, of whom I'm very critical at the moment, were really able to do to make sure that people didn't have the, the pain of economic deprivation and poverty piled on top of the public health pandemic. And ultimately, of course, these programs need to wind down. Hopefully we've learned something from them about better ways of doing social programs, about universal basic income in this country. But ultimately, right now, our focus needs to be get away from the politics and focus entirely on getting through this fourth wave. Because but for the grace of God, the other provinces will come the way that Alberta has come unless we get those vaccination numbers up and unless we build even more resiliency into our health care system. Yeah, although that was a polarizing issue in the campaign, Steph. How, how does that, how does that, I mean, everyone keeps saying take the politics out of it. Politics is kind of inherent 
in it, as you know. But how, how did the federal government, how does Justin Trudeau tackle that and try to, try to get ahead of the curve on that? Well, I mean, you know, the, the brief, shiny, momentary glimpse of party unity that we had during this entire election campaign was on the question of getting everybody on the same page when it came to getting vaccines out there. And it would be really nice, you know, again, in this divided parliament, after an election nobody wanted, what can the leaders do collectively? Is there anything they can do collectively? I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that. But one thing I do know, Evan, is that we're heading into fall. And we're heading into everybody being inside a lot more often. We're heading then into winter. And I know I sound like a weather person, but what I'm trying to get at is that if they don't find a way to solve this in like the super near short term, we are going to see cases continue to rise across the country. Because, you know, as people are fond of saying, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. But what we also know about the Delta variant is the vaccinated can also be affected. And so, and then we're gonna get into the issue of vaccinating kids. If we thought it was polarized before, wait yeah. until we start having a debate about mandatory vaccination in children. Yeah, and that's coming, and it's gotta come. Uh, Marika, let me just leave it here with you. Uh, Steph said we gotta, you know, people want the parties to work together. Is there a mandate now because nobody wants another election? So does Trudeau didn't get the majority he wanted, does he say, okay, I can set an agenda and I know I'm going to get support? Or does, say, Jagmeet Singh, who essentially holds the balance of power again, say, sorry, no deal unless I see movement on national pharmacare or some of his agenda pieces? I think that's the million-dollar question. How are the liberals thinking? I think that some people say, yes, they have this strong majority, strong minority, excuse me, and so maybe they can push ahead more. But I think they also should be a bit more humbled by the fact that they went into this election expecting and hoping for a majority and were denied one. I think that you will see the NDP and the bloc come forward with stronger demands in exchange for support. And we'll see in the throne speech, really, that's the first time whether, whether the liberals are willing to play ball or whether the liberals say, call the bluff of the opposition and just expect them to go along to get along because they're not ready for another election. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this, nobody's ready for another election. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, <laughs> first of all, Mayor Nenshi, I know your city's really going through it again in the fourth wave. I really appreciate you taking the time and good luck to the health uh, and welfare of your citizens. Uh, Marika Thank and you. Steph, uh, who have been on a long, long election marathon, I greatly appreciate having you here and your great work. And that is question period for this week. From all of us here, and I know all of you watching, we are grateful that the two Michaels are finally home and reunited with their families after more than a thousand days in a Chinese prison. That comes right after our federal election to everybody who worked on campaigns, putting their hat in the ring at polling stations or who voted. The exercise of our democracy matters more than ever and stands in stark relief to what the two Michaels experience. That is not lost on anyone. Thanks so much for watching. I'll see you on Power Play tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. Hug your loved ones and we'll be right back here in seven short days.